With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast on Tuesday, the 29th of March, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network will allow you to go online, change your location, access things you geoblock from, while also keeping your data safe. So, for example, if you're a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, or all four, a Liberty Shield VPN will get you where you want to go while also keeping that data safe. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot. And if you go to libertyshield.com and use the code router50, you will get your router half price. That's router50 at libertyshield.com. We're also brought to you by by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, I want to start today with a couple of notable omissions from my suggestions yesterday at Future Hall of Famers. Now, it wasn't to be an exhaustive list. I think you'd have to go through season by season and have a look at who was on what team and what they were able to accomplish. And you'd have to basically go through every team that's been in the Premier League. But there were two. One's been pointed out to me, and one I realised after I finished doing the podcast, and I'm quite ashamed to have missed off the second one. The first one did just slip my mind. The first one was brought to me by Mikhail Campbell, so thanks to him, and it's Edwin van der Sar. Edwin van der Sar played for Fulham from 2001 to 2005, and then for United from 05 to 2011. And he was outstanding for both clubs. His run at Fulham, he, he's probably the Fulham candidate. I suggest they don't have anybody. He's probably the one. He's the best player they've had maybe ever. Like, this guy was a legitimately world-class goalkeeper. And people forget that he was a legitimately world-class goalkeeper long before he got to Fulham. He was part of that incredible Ajax team under Louis van Gaal that won the Champions League. He also won five league ti- sorry, four league titles, three Dutch Cups, three Super Cups, a UEFA Cup, a, Europe, a UEFA Super Cup, and an Intercontinental Cup with them. He was the one that stayed, as everyone else left, as Overmars and 
Lipmanen and Clivert and Davids and Seedorf and the De Boers and Reitziger and Bogart, as they all left, he stayed. And maybe harmed his career in doing so. Maybe he stayed there a bit too long, and that's why he doesn't get the respect he deserves. But in 1999, he joined Juventus. Now, at the time, Juventus were the preeminent force in Syria. They were an outstanding team. They sold Angelo Peruzzi, who was the number one for Italy at the time, to Inter Milan. And they replaced him with Edwin van der Sar. A brilliant signing. United had wanted him at the time to replace Peter Schmeichel. And he decided to go to Juventus. He had two seasons there. And he was very, very good for them. Now, not by any fault of his, they failed to win the league title either season. But that wasn't on him. That was because Lazio and Roma spent themselves to the edge of oblivion to win those Serie A titles. This is when Serie A was really on a pedestal by itself as the best league in the world. The Premier League was good. We had that great Arsenal versus United rivalry, the greatest rivalry English football has maybe ever seen, where the two teams were really well matched. And then you had all the individual battles as well. You had Ferguson versus Wenger. You had Keane versus Vieira. Obviously, later on, other rivalries came through, such as Ashley Cole against Cristiano. Cole's run against Cristiano, obviously, more prevalent when he went to Chelsea. But that's where that began. You also had Martin Keown against Van Nistelrooy as that progressed as well. But Keane versus Vieira, Ferguson versus Wenger, United versus Arsenal. That was a really special time in English football. But Liverpool made the odd little surge in. Chelsea had one year where they kind of crept in and did, you know, did a bit of sniffing about to see what it was like at the top of the table. But it was really those two, those two and everybody else. Whereas in Syria, you had Juventus, you had AC Milan, you had Lazio, you had Roma, you had Parma, you had the Fiorentina teams with Badastut. Obviously, he left and went to Roma. You had Inter, who were spending money left and right. So you had a, you had a much stronger league in Italy than we had in the Premier League overall. So he goes there and he's brilliant for two years, like genuinely very, very good for two years. And the view is that he flopped because Juve sold him after the second year. The truth is that Juve also sold Zinedine Zidane that year and used that money to buy Gigi Buffon, Lillian Turam, and Pavel Nedved. And Buffon, at that point, everybody understood we we're witnessing something incredibly special here. This is the guy. This is going to be the best goalkeeper in the world for many, many years. Buffon was 23 years of age. He'd already been in the Parma team for five and a half years at that point. Everybody knew we're witnessing something special here. And Juve jumped on it and paid a world record fee 
to get him. They brought him and Turam for a combined 52 million euro, which at the time was unheard of. And 32 million of that was for Buffon. Absolutely incredible keeper. And that's why Van der Sar was sold. It had nothing to do with Van der Sar, but a 31, even though at the time he might have been a touch above Buffon, Buffon was 23 and ascending. So Juventus made the decision to sell him and they sold him to Fulham, which was a shock to everybody. When it was announced that newly promoted Fulham had signed Edwin van der Sar, nobody could really believe it. So he plays for Fulham for four years and then United buy him for two million because he was on an expiring contract. He had one year left. He'd done an extension with Fulham after the initial four-year deal for one year, or he'd done it during his contract. Either way, United buy him for two million and he's unbelievable for them. They win four league titles in his six years. They set defensive records for longest time without conceding a goal. He was absolutely key to them winning the league title in 07. He also won a League Cup, a Champions League, got to two other Champions League finals. And truth be told, his time at United might be more impressive than Schmeichel's because of how special they were in Europe. Remember United in the 90s failed in Europe time after time after time until they finally struck gold and won it in 99. Van der Sar was just incredible. Three-time member of the PFA Team of the Year, Premier League Merit Award in 09, Golden Glove in 09, UEFA Club Goalkeeper of the Year in 09. He was also Fulham's Player of the Year in 04. Edwin van der Sar is absolutely a Premier League Hall of Famer. His 10-year run is always overlooked. When we talk about the greatest goalkeepers of the Premier League era, we tend to go Schmeichel, Seaman, and Peter, uh, Peter Cech in that order. Now, Alison Becker is firmly in that debate, and I believe he might be the best keeper that the Premier League has seen. But Ed, Edwin van der Sar deserves recognition because Cech was great until he had the head injury. Now, he was still brilliant afterwards, but he was never quite as good after the head injury. And van der Sar just managed to maintain this incredibly consistent level during his entire time at United. And he was 40 when he left. He would have turned 41 later that year. 130 caps for the Netherlands. I don't think we can overlook it. He may well be, to date, the best keeper the Premier League has seen. The level that he showed across those 10 years. So he has longevity on Schmeichel. I think he was a better keeper than David Seaman. Him and Czech is close, but I think I would go with Van der Sar. I think Van der Sar's run from about 06 through to, say, 2010 
remember this is a guy in his late 30s in this spell was just so strong so yeah Edwin van der Sar absolutely uh, a deserving candidate and I would put him even though his better years came at United because he won stuff I'd put him in as the Fulham candidate um, but it's it's actually strange just how overlooked he is and how disrespected you see him being sometimes by certain people who just didn't watch him play the other one I'm this is the one I'm annoyed at myself for for forgetting about or just not not picking up on is Gary Speed. So Gary Speed played in the Premier League from 92, the first season, all the way through to 2010. And this is not a Gareth Barry, James Milner type of longevity thing because Gary Speed was legitimately one of the best, if not the best players in a, a number of teams that he played in. So he was part of the Leeds team that won the league title in the old first division. He joined them, joined the first team from the academy when they were in the second division, came up with them into the first division, helped them win the first division title. Stayed there for four more years in the Premier League. Scores 12 goals, 12 goals, three goals and seven goals. Then he goes to Everton, has a brilliant first season, absolutely outstanding first season. 11 goals in 41 games in all competitions, 9 and 37 in the league. He is their best player. Newcastle decide they want him, so they buy him midway through the second season. And again, he's having a great season. He's got seven goals in 21 games. He goes to the tune, and it takes him a while to settle in, gets 1 and 13 in the, the remainder of that season. He never quite hit the goal tallies at Newcastle, but he did have a, a season high or career high rather of 13 in 49 in all competitions in 99 in 36 in the league was his joint second best ever after that it's fours and fives but he plays with Newcastle all the way up until 2004 then he joins Bolton plays three full seasons with them and in 06-07 has eight goals in 38 league games now, bear in mind, this man is 36, 37 at this point, And he's still doing that. Midway through the next season, he joins Sheffield Wednesday, who are in the championship. Plays two seasons there. Joins the coaching staff. Becomes the manager for a short time. And then obviously retires and becomes the manager of Wales. And sadly, in 2011 ended his own life but Gary Speed is absolutely warranting of a place in the Hall of Fame an absolutely brilliant footballer left wing right left side of a midfield three could play in a double pivot good passer great crosser one of the best headers of the ball you'll ever see Powerful ball carrier, could just make driving runs. Had a little bit of Lampard about him in that he knew how to time his runs. Now he was doing it from the wing when he was at his best, but he would time his run at the back post brilliantly and could absolutely leather a football. Like he could caress across, but there are some Gary Speed goals that you'll find on YouTube where he just puts his foot through the ball from about 25 yards out and it just arrows into the goal. There are some really spectacular Gary Speed goals over the years. 
And he is one of the most warranting people because I talked yesterday about doing it by generation. Gary Speed bridges multiple generations. Gary Speed was playing in the Premier League in its first season. And at that point was 23 and was still playing 18 years later. In, in the Premier League, he was still playing 16 years later at 39. So it's not like he broke through as a kid in straight into the Premier League. He'd had three hard seasons before that. Gary Speed was a great player. He was one I always wanted at Liverpool. I always thought Gary Speed was the type of player that would do really well at Liverpool. That Leeds midfield of Strachan, McAllister, Batty and Speed had a bit of everything. The wiliness and creativity of Strachan, the goal-scoring power-running of Speed, the ball-winning of Batty and just the class and ability to dictate a game of Gary McAllister. That's one of the underrated midfielders. Midfields, rather. Good for Everton. Good for Newcastle. Good for Bolton. Very good at times. Everton made a two million profit on him in 18 months. And at the time, him joining... Everton for 3.5 million. That was big money. It was big money back in 96, 97. He left Everton under strange circumstances. I'm just reading here. The reasons underlying Speed's departure from Everton were never revealed. He told the Liverpool Echo, you know why I'm leaving, but I can't explain myself publicly because it would damage the good name of Everton Football Club, and I'm not prepared to do that. I'd be very curious to know what happened there. He was in the PFA player team of the year only once. He should have been in more often. But in the first season, he was in the team. He was player of the year at Everton. I think he was player of the year one year at Leeds. A very, very good player. Could do a bit of everything. If he came through now, Gary Speed would be a left-back. He'd be a rampaging left-back. And he'd be brilliant at it. At one point, he held the record for the most appearances in the Premier League. That was surpassed by David James and Ryan Giggs, and now obviously a couple of others have done so as well. In his career, he played 841 senior games at club level and 85 at international level. Do you know how hard it is to play the better part of a 1,000 club games and international games combined? That's really impressive. And he probably could have played on a couple of years longer if he wanted to. He just had a great level of natural fitness. So, yeah, Gary Speed um, absolutely should be a Hall of Famer. Gary Speed was, was a really, really good player from 93 till 
07. He was a really good Premier League player, not just a decent one or a good one, a really good Premier League player from 92, 93 to 06, 07. That's a long time to be very good. Um, right. Let's have a look then at what we've got on offer tonight. It's obviously the international break and the World Cup qualifiers are getting towards the crunch stages, the last games. Thus far, we have 20 teams qualified for the World Cup. Canada's qualification at the weekend means that they're the 20th team qualified. There's, there's 32 teams to play in this World Cup before it goes to 48 for the next one. And that leaves 12 spots. So we'll take a little wander around and have a look and see what's left. So in South America, Brazil are through, Argentina are through, Ecuador are through, and Uruguay are through. Uh, South America gets four automatic quali qualifying spots. And a fifth that has to go through the Inter-Confederations playoffs. So right now, Peru are fifth. They face Paraguay at home. And a win puts them through. A win will put them in the Confederation playoff thing. If they fail to win, Colombia can jump them. If Colombia beat Venezuela, and if Venezuela finished bottom of the league, uh, have nothing to play for and may not really give much care to this game. So if Colombia win, they give themselves a chance. So whichever team gets through, and it can only be Peru or Colombia, they will go through to the Confederation playoff. There they will face the playoff team from Asia. So in Asia right now, South Korea, Iran, Japan, and Saudi Arabia, they've all qualified. They will be at the World Cup. There's to be a playoff match to decide which team will represent Asia at this inter-confederation playoff. Australia have qualified for that game, and they will face either the United Arab Emirates, or Iraq. UAE are one point clear. They take on South Korea tonight. And Iraq play Syria. You would have to give the advantage to Iraq. They've got the easier game. Both those games, I think, are to be played in Dubai. So one of them, United Arab Emirates or Iraq, will face Australia. And then the winner of that game will go forward and play either Colombia or Peru. So that's a tough path for the Aussies or for Colombia or Peru. That's a tough game to get through. The Oceania region doesn't get an automatic qualifier. They get one team through to the Inter-Confederation playoffs. So Wednesday, tomorrow we'll see the Solomon Islands against New Zealand. The winner of that goes through to the Inter-Confederations playoff, and they will face the team from CONCACAF, which is basically North and Central America. So Canada are through. 
there's two more spots for automatic and then one to go and play likely New Zealand. So the USA, Mexico and Costa Rica are competing for this last spot. Mexico play El Salvador at home, excuse me, at home and should win that game comfortably. So Mexico should get through. America traveled to Costa Rica. A draw is enough to put the Americans through, but they will know that should they fail to win, should they lose the game, while Costa Rica will, will qualify automatically, the Americans will still have the chance to go and play New Zealand or the Solomon Islands. So wouldn't be the end of the world. But I would say you'd give America uh, a strong bias in that one in terms of betting odds. So what I'm guessing we'll see is Canada, the United States and Mexico through and Costa Rica to the playoffs where Costa Rica would face New Zealand and then Australia will play I'm guessing Peru, but maybe Colombia in the other one. And then we'll get the last two teams to qualify from there. In Africa, they don't get a confederation spot. They get five qualification spots. There are five matches being played today, which will decide which five teams go through. They've already played one leg. Tonight will be the second leg. So, all of the games are really evenly balanced. Algeria will play Cameroon. Algeria won the first leg 1-0, and now they play the home leg, and they'll be confident of getting through. Islam Slimani gave them the only goal of the game in the first leg in Cameroon, and they'll hope to press home that advantage. Tunisia also hold a 1-0 advantage over Mali. They also will play at home, so they will be confident that they'll advance. Now, Mali will be a tough out. I think that's a tougher game than Cameroon, who just disappoint all the time. So I'm guessing Algeria, and I would say Tunisia just having home advantage and the 1-0 lead. They'll be the next two. Um, Ghana and Nigeria drew 1-1 in Ghana. So now the second leg will be played tonight in Nigeria. Obviously, Nigeria will have the advantage of being at home. I think they've probably got the slightly better squad as well, just because their key players are a little bit older. Some of the Ghanaians are quite young and inexperienced. But that'll be a tough, that'll be a tough game. And then the final, uh, sorry, the next one then is Morocco against the Democratic Republic of Congo. They played out a 1-1 draw in Kinshasa. So now in Casablanca tonight, Morocco should be favourites to get through. So I would guess Nigeria and Morocco are the two teams to go through there. The final one, obviously, is, I suppose, the marquee one, Egypt against Senegal, repeat of the AFCON final. Egypt are one up after the first leg, but the second leg will be played in Senegal, so kind of balances itself out. The game last week was very, very tense, very, very tight. Obviously, the Afghan, AFCON final was as well. So I think you would have to give the edge tonight to Senegal, but it could go either way. So that's what we've got. We've got Senegal, Egypt, Algeria, Cameroon, 
Tunisia, Mali, Ghana, Nigeria, or Nigeria, Ghana, I should say, and Morocco against the Democratic Republic of Congo, not to be confused with the Republic of Congo. Um, and that will decide the five teams from, from Africa. And then in Europe, we should be having three games tonight to decide the last three qualifiers from Europe. We already have 10 teams gone through. Germany, Denmark, France, Belgium, Croatia, Spain, Serbia, England, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. They each won the 10, the 10 groups, and they go through. What happens then? The 10 runners-up, and the two best teams outside of the 20, being the 10 winners and 10 runners-up, who had done the best in the Nations League, that 12-team group gets split up into four, sorry, three pathways for semifinals and finals, and that's what we've had recently. So the first one was Wales-Austria, Scotland-Ukraine. Obviously, the Welsh beat Austria, but Scotland-Ukraine has been postponed, so Wales just have to sit kicking their heels until June, and we'll see what happens with Scotland-Ukraine. But Wales will be confident, I think, of beating either team and advancing to the World Cup. Russia were thrown out, so Poland got a bye, and they've been sitting and waiting to see who they would face. Sweden beat the Czech Republic in extra time at the weekend. Uh, Robin Kausen with the only goal of the game. And um, that one should be a cracker. That is tonight. That is in, um, in Poland. So they'll have the advantage. This is probably Lewandowski's last World Cup. I don't think he'll be around for the next one. Maybe he will. Maybe at 37, possibly. Possibly, but this is probably his last chance. And then in Group C, Italy got dumped out by North Macedonia in the biggest shock of the entire qualifiers so far, not just in Europe, but globally. They're the first team that we thought could win it that are out. And North Macedonia will now play Portugal, who defeated Turkey in a 3-1 game that kind of flattered the, Portug uh, the Portuguese. So that one is tonight. North Macedonia versus Portugal. And Cristiano Ronaldo has come out and said, a game of our lives, which is interesting. So, you know I don't have much time for him. I think he's an incredible goal scorer, one of the greatest goal scorers the game has ever seen. I don't believe he's in the very small group of the greatest players of all time. Great goal scorer, but not in that elite player range for me. He's been a great player, don't get me wrong. He's top 25 ever. I'm just not putting him in the same conversation with Messi and Maradona and Best and Cruyff and Pele and Beckenbauer and Maldini and those type of guys. For me, he's a level below them as a player. But we hear so much about his goal scoring record, and you know, especially for Portugal. And we hear about, you know, what a winner he is and how clutch he is and what a big game player he is. And none of that is really true. You can go back and look at his career in cup finals. It doesn't make good reading, even though he scored, like let's just take the 08 Champions League final, for example, he scored, but he had a stinker. He was terrible in that game. 
go back and look at the 2016 Euros final. He was awful. He gets injured, goes off, and Portugal go on and win it. And you can really go through a lot of the finals he's played. So I was just having a look at his World Cup track record yesterday. And obviously he's played in four World Cups so far, 06, 10, 14, and 18. And none of it makes all that pretty reading. So Portugal got to the semi-finals in 06. Uh, he scored one goal in the competition. He scored a penalty in a group stage game against Iran that Portugal were already leading in. So he didn't make any real goal-scoring contribution to the team in that World Cup. In 2010, he again scores one goal in the World Cup. He scores the seventh goal in a 7-0 win over North Korea in the group stage. And Portugal go out in the round of 16. In 2014, he scores one goal. And Portugal get eliminated in the group stage. He scores the winner over Ghana. It's the first consequential goal he's gotten at the World Cup in his third World Cup. And both sides were already basically eliminated, so it made no difference anyway. So the pressure was off. In 2018, he scores a hat-trick in the opening game against Spain. The game ends 3-3. Then he scores the winner in the next game against Morocco. And then he no-shows completely in the round of 16, and out they go. And this is his last World Cup because he can't go to America. So he can't travel to America. So he, this is his last chance to really make an impact at a World Cup. And he's, very, he's had a very, very lucky turn that it's not Italy waiting for him in this game. Because if it was, Portugal would be going home. They wouldn't be going to the World Cup. And his World Cup legacy would be, I would say, arguably the worst legacy of any of the top 30 players ever. Maybe more. Because he's been at four World Cups and done little to nothing at any of them. He's never scored out of the group stage. Well, he's been the best player in the team because he wasn't in 06. Well, he's been the best player in the team. They've gone out in the round of 16, the group stage in the round of 16. That's fairly shocking. And his performances have been worse than his goal scoring record. You look at Euros, he's rarely played all that well. He's just stat padded with penalties and tap ins. His World Cup record, he hasn't even done that. Hasn't even stat padded. What are you doing, Cristiano? We'll take a break. When we come back, we've got the bits of news and we've got the gossip and we'll be done for the day. Nice and quick. See you in a few.
Right, welcome back. So, uh, we begin the news with sad news coming from Belgium. Miguel van Damme, the Circle Bruges goalkeeper, has passed away after a six-year battle with leukemia um, at only 28 years of age. He fought with absolutely everything he had, but unfortunately, sometimes it's just not meant to be. And um, he passed away yesterday with his family and friends around him. Actually, passed away this morning with his family and friends around him. So, uh, rest in peace, Miguel Van Damme, a very talented goalkeeper who unfortunately did not get to fulfil his lifelong dreams and potential. Uh, England will play the Ivory Coast tonight in a friendly match. And Gareth Southgate is set to make wholesale changes. Uh, John Stones will miss the game having suffered an injury um, before the Switzerland game, which meant he had to withdraw from the team and he's gone back to Manchester City. It does look like it could be quite the different team for England tonight. Other games tonight, friendlies, we have Denmark versus Serbia, Austria versus Scotland. That's a good game for Scotland to measure themselves against Austria, considering Wales just beat them and see where they stand. England, Ivory Coast, Northern Ireland, Hungary, Republic of Ireland, Lithuania, will be hoping for the win. Wales against the Czech Republic. Again, that should be a decent test for the Welsh. Azerbaijan versus Latvia, I think, is already either already on or already over. Uh, Croatia versus Bulgaria. Liechtenstein versus the Faroe Islands. Albania versus Georgia. Iran versus Belarus. Finland, Slovakia. The five games I mentioned from Africa, they're all tonight, as are the games in South America. So the Colombia, Venezuela and Peru, Paraguay games, they're tonight as well. Tomorrow we get the Oceania games and the Asian games. Um, so do keep an eye on them. And obviously, like I said, the, the two European games, they're tonight as well. North Macedonia against Portugal in Porto and Poland hosting Sweden. So plenty of good games tonight. Plenty of games with a lot on the line. Uh, the BBC have continued their Wonder Kids series. And next up, the next central defender, Josko Gvardiol, outstanding young player at Orby Leipzig, who Leeds tried to sign a couple of years ago. Um, this is a, a very special centre-back. And the fact that they've played a back three, he might be the first player that actually suits the way they've set this up. He is ideal for the left side of a back three. If I was running Spurs, he would be my primary target for the summer to play on the left of their back three. If you can get Romero on the right and him on the left, it makes life an awful lot easier. If they could, could get Stefan DeVries for the middle role, then they would be absolutely sorted for their back three. Gvardiol is very, very special. Um, I actually am curious to see who the last four players they put in this will be. They've got a goalkeeper, a right-side centre-back, one more in midfield and one more up front that they will pick. Um, I'm, I'm not amused by the current setup but that's just me being pedantic more than anything else 
Uh, I think that's everything. So we can just wrap up with the... Oh, no, you know what? It's not everything. It's not everything. I saw this earlier and wanted to just bring it up. So I saw an Arsenal fan trying to claim that Arsenal have been better than Chelsea this season. The league table is basically lined. So he tweets out uh, why the table doesn't tell the full story with Arsenal this season. Points per game in the Premier League after game week three when Arsenal got seven starters back. So he wants us to just throw out the first three games of the season and act like they didn't happen. Um, And he claims Arsenal got seven starters back. Now, I'm not sure that that's completely accurate. So let's just quickly check in on those three games. So against Brentford, Leno started in goal. Chambers, Ben White, Pablo Mari, Kieran Tierney. So that's two of their starting back three. Granite Xhaka, Mark Nelly, Smith Rowe, Nicola Pepe and Balogun. But Kyle Saka was on the bench and came on in that game. So what seven starters are they missing? So they're missing Lacazette, Thomas Partey, Gabriel and Ramsdale. But Ramsdale wasn't the starter at that point. Now, Arsenal fans will say we were missing Tommy Asu. But that doesn't really make sense to me because, well, you didn't own Tommy Asu at the time. You bought Tommy Asu a couple of weeks later. So you weren't missing him. You didn't own him. You can't miss a player that you don't own. They'll also then claim, obviously, that they were missing Mark Nodegaard. But again, you didn't own him at the time. You didn't buy him until a week later. So you can't miss players you don't own. Can't count them. So you weren't missing seven starters at all. You're missing Lacazette, Gabriel, and Thomas Partey. You're missing three starters at the time. Leno was the starter. And yeah, you can claim Ramsdale but he wasn't the starting goalkeeper at that point. The plan wasn't for him to start straight away. They were quite clear about that. Things just changed. You also didn't sign him until a week later, so you weren't missing him either. You played your best 11 bar a couple of players. So if we move on then to Arsenal's second game, which was against Chelsea, two days after they signed a couple of these new starters, Leno, Cedric, Holding, Mary, Tierney. So you can make the argument you're missing two in defence, Ben White and Gabriel. Ramsdale is on the bench, so he's not missing. Uh, Thomas Partey is injured, so that's another one. So you're missing him. So you're missing three starters. Uh, Xhaka is there. Pepe is there. Smith Rowe, Saka, and Martinelli. Um, yeah, so you, you weren't missing seven starters at all. Uh, I would say you're missing Lacazette. I would say you were missing Tomas, Gabriel, and White. You're missing four starters. And then the third game is the Chelsea game. No, sorry, the third game is the Manchester City game, which you get whooped. Um, you line up with 
Cedric Chambers holding Kolasinic, uh, Kieran Tierney, Saka, Odegaard, Xhaka, Smith-Rowe, Aubameyang. And Aubameyang would have probably been the starting striker at that point, but you know he was on the bench in the previous game against Chelsea. But Lacazette's there on the bench. Uh, Ramsdale's on the bench. Martinelli's on the bench. You're missing Ben White, Partey, and Gabrielle. You're missing three players. So you weren't missing seven starters for any of them. You're missing four for two and three in one. It's not anyone else's fault that Aaron Ramsdale was signed so late in the window or that it took a little bit of time for him to get his way into the team. It's not anyone else's fault that Tommy Asu wasn't signed in July when he was available. It's not anyone else's fault that Ben White was sick, quote-unquote. Um, every team has injuries. Every team has injuries. Chelsea have had a lot of injuries. Chelsea are better than Arsenal. Arsenal at no point have missed seven starters. Not once. I also want to draw your attention to the single greatest thread that has ever been put together on social media. So the account that's put it together is called Not Escapism, N-O-T-E-S-C-A-P-I-S-M. 3331 is the name on the account. It's the first thread you'll see, and it's entitled Thread, How Fabrizio Romano Steals the News from Not Famous Journalists. And it is magnificent. It is absolutely magnificent. He has repeatedly, repeatedly, gone through the last couple of years of Romano stealing and just highlights all of it. And there's a lovely moment here in one of these where Andy Mitten, a real journalist who covers Manchester United, responds to Romano claiming that United were about to sign Philippe Stefanovic Mitten replies, checked it out on Felipe, told it's not through. Someone else replies, delete this before it goes viral. And Andy Mitten replies, why? I did my job properly and checked the story out with three different sources who were all correct and told the truth. He replied to that a couple of weeks later. Um, and then he got absolutely hammered by lots and lots of United Accounts, random Romano fanboys claiming it's a done deal and all this sort of nonsense. And yet, Philippe Stefanovic is now a Manchester City player, not a Manchester United player. Andy Mitten was 100% correct and Romano was 100% wrong, as generally is the case. But there is plenty of examples here. Do go through this thread. It'll take you a while. There's the better part of 100 tweets in it. And it is absolutely outstanding 
research by this man who's put this tri- thread together. Uh, Romano has blocked him. He sent him a threatening DM because that's what he does. He's a bully. But do check it out. Not escapism on Twitter. Absolute belter. Uh, like and share the bejesus out of that thread. Uh, we'll wrap up with today's gossip then. Barcelona's attempts to make Mo Salah, to, sorry, to sign Mo Salah, is set to be thwarted by their inability to comply with La Liga's financial rules, uh, which is what I've been saying. Liverpool will face competition to sign Jude Bellingham from Real Madrid. Uh, Jude Bellingham probably doesn't go anywhere this summer. Leeds have placed an 80 million euro price tag on Rafinha with Barcelona only willing to pay half that figure. That's why Barcelona won't be signing him. Leeds say the only release clause in his contract is one that allows him to leave if the club are relegated from the Premier League. So talk of two release clauses was nonsense. Manchester United, Liverpool and Newcastle are interested in signing Portugal midfielder Otavio from Porto this summer. Uh, Liverpool have been linked with three different players from Porto in the last couple of months, two in the last week. And I'm going to just go ahead and call nonsense on all of them, to be completely honest. Um, Arsenal and Atletico Madrid are vying for the signature of Latour Martinez, who Inter will sell this summer if they receive an offer in the region of £58 million. Um, If I could give him some advice, it would be don't join either of those clubs. Like I said yesterday, Martinez for Lukaku, straight swap. It solves so many problems for both clubs. Paolo Dybala wants to join Atletico Madrid when his contract ends this summer. Um, Again, I don't really buy into that, but it is Mundo Deportivo, so we can probably put it in the bin. Liverpool have reached an agreement in principle to sign Fabio Carvalho. It's Football Insider, so he doesn't really know if it's true or not. But David Lynch, who is reliable for Liverpool News, he has said this a couple of months ago, so I, I do believe him. Arsenal are preparing their opening proposal for Bukayo Saka. Uh, it, that's the spoofer, so I wonder who he's stolen that from. Thomas Partey is hinted at a summer exit from the club from Arsenal. Sorry, did I say Thomas Partey? I meant Nicolas Pepe has hinted at a summer... I'm looking at a picture of Thomas Partey, and I've got Nicolas Pepe here. Nicolas Pepe has hinted at a summer exit from Arsenal uh, three years after his club record £72 million move. The issue is, who's going to pay a large sum of money for him? That's the biggest problem. Leicester City are linked with Club Bruges forward Charles de Catalaire. The 21-year-old has scored 17 goals in 41 games this season won his fifth cap at the weekend for the Belgian senior team. I really like this kid. I think he's really, really special. He's 21. He is, he's got to be 6'3". He, he reminds me massively of, of Kai Havertz. Uh, 17 goals and nine assists in 3,537 minutes. And we're only in March. He's going to play... 4,000 minutes this season. He's going to hit 20 goals and 10 assists. He's going to hit 20 goals and 10 assists. That's really impressive at his age. Uh, He has one goal in five games for the senior national team. And he's not actually a striker. He is a 10 inside forward. You could develop him into a false nine. He's one I'd be very interested in seeing come to the Premier League. He's very special. 
might be the next great Belgian player. United States midfielder Brendan Aronson still wants to leave Red Bull Salzburg this summer and negotiations are ongoing over a move to Leeds. Would make more sense now with Jesse Marsh there. Which is why I think the Jesse Marsh thing was in the pipeline before Bielsa got. I wonder were they planning for Bielsa to go in the summer and just have Aronson there ready for Marsh to come in. Uh, Newcastle are targeting Watford winger Ishmael Assar with Liverpool also watching the Senegal International. I think Liverpool's name just gets linked to him because they've looked at him in the past. Wolves, Tottenham and Everton have shown interest in Rennes French coach, French coach Bruno Genesio. Well, Wolves and Tottenham both have far better managers than him. And all three of these clubs have appointed a new manager within the last year. Uh, he's a much better coach than Lampard, but that wouldn't be hard. But he's not. He's not good enough to go and manage Spurs. Not in my view. He's done a decent job at Ren, no question, but not, not a brilliant job. He was okay at Leon. I wouldn't say he was anything special. Everton, I could see it making sense. Manchester United are set to open contract talks with Marcus Rashford and, and Luke Shaw. Yep. United have no intentions to discuss the ex, discuss extensions for Lingard, Cavani or Juan Mata. Not surprising. Napoli are hopeful of preventing Kaladu Koulibaly from leaving on a free transfer by offering the 30-year-old a new long-term contract. When is he out of contract? If Napoli lost him on a free, having turned down 80 and 90 million from his out of contract in a year, at this point, I'm guessing he probably stays where he is and retires there. And he'll go down as one of their greatest ever players. I mean, he's been sensational for them since joining back in 2014. So he'll have nine years left when this contract is done. He's staying with a couple of years beyond that. Yeah, he'll he'll be fine. He'll 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 have options though. Uh, Barcelona are set to rival Real Madrid in this the race to sign Kieran Tierney. I'm guessing Kieran Tierney is coming up for a contract extension. It's about the only thing I can think of here. Kieran Tierney contract situation. No, he's had a contract in 2026, and he signed a contract last summer. Interesting. I don't believe for one second leader Spanish club will be in for him. That fella'd melt if he went to Spain. He's nearly translucent, he's that pale. Arsenal are leading the chase to sign Netherlands winger Cody Gakpo. Yeah. Leeds are monitoring the progress of James Garner, who's impressed on loan at Nottingham Forest this season. Yeah, I, I, he's not ready to play for United. I mean, he'd fit in with their current group midfielders, but they're looking to get much better than that. Bruce, he is... He will be fine in the Premier League, though. Borussia Dortmund are interested in signing Timo Werner and Anthony Martial. Um, can't sign both of them because they do exactly the same thing. But I, I think I'd go Werner. If I was Dortmund, I think I'd go Werner. I think Martial has more to his all-round game. But I think the German thing has to push it in Werner's direction. Barcelona have prioritised the signing of Chelsea and Spain defender Cesar Aspilicueta this summer. 
So I saw a quote from Jean Laporte where he said that Barca have already signed a midfielder and a defender. I assume the midfielder is Frank Kessie. So is the defender Christensen or Aspilqueta? It's just not done yet. It's just not announced yet, I mean. That's possible. It's possible. Christensen is the one they should be signing. Um, but Aspilqueta makes sense to them as well. Just from his versatility, can play both sides, can play in the middle if they want to play a back three. I think he, he's the type of player that would do well around Xavi. And that's it. That is That is me for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye. Podcast Network.